Open your Bibles, please, to Ephesians. We're in a series in the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians. And open to Ephesians chapter 4. You know, the truth is, it's, it's easier to stay on the sidelines when you think you're not a starter. It, it's easier to sit back and wait for others to step up when you don't feel like you have much to offer. It's hard to participate when you're still trying to figure out how your part contributes to the big picture. Ephesians 4, it reminds us that every follower of Jesus has much to offer. That, that you have been called and you have been equipped. And, and the part you play is vital. And so what is that calling? And how has Jesus himself equipped you to not only see that calling, but to carry it out? Let's explore it. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Spirit of God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that we would engage this text with everything in us, that we would receive all that you have for us, that you would equip us, equip us here through this passage. Help us to leave this place eager to engage, to use the gifts you've given us, to see the part we play, to be convinced of it. In Christ's name, amen. All right, three parts this morning, three points. One, called to a lifestyle that reflects what Jesus accomplished. You are called. Second, you're equipped, equipped for the work of ministry. And third, vital. You are vital to the health of local church St. Pete. Called, equipped, vital. First, 
called to a lifestyle that reflects what Jesus accomplished. Paul spent a considerable amount of time reminding the Ephesians who they were in Christ Jesus and what God's love and grace had produced in them, the victory that it brought them. He had spent a couple chapters already speaking of the dividing wall of sin and shame that had been destroyed, the dividing wall of hatred and and strife between Jew and non-Jew or Gentile that had been brought down, all because of what Christ accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. And so then here he reminds them that he is a prisoner for the Lord. He's a prisoner for the Lord. Literally, he's in prison as he writes this letter. Ultimately, he knows he is captive to Jesus's love and grace. That's who he's really captive to. And it's meant to bring perspective as he writes. It's meant to bring perspective and to inspire when he mentions that he is a prisoner of the Lord Jesus. And that's what it does. And for only the second time in this letter, Paul brings them an imperative. It's a command. Here's what he says. I urge you. I beg you. In other words, I'm pleading with you. There's a sense of urgency in what he's saying. In other words, don't be passive about what I'm about to say. It it needs to be addressed right now is, is what he's getting at. There's no time to wait. And what's he say? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, he's saying, live your life in a way that is consistent with your allegiance and your loyalty to Jesus. Let me say that again. Live your life in a way that is consistent with your allegiance to King Jesus. Consistent. So Paul uses the term walk. It's a Hebrew analogy for a way of life. Way of life. And he'll do this throughout this letter and other letters. It's the way someone conducts their behavior, or we could say lifestyle. And so Today and next Sunday, we're going to be talking about a lifestyle that is shaped by our allegiance to King Jesus. Really, we've been talking about that throughout the entire letter. And so Paul uses this term as an analogy for a way of life. And and so follower of Jesus, listen, you are called to a particular lifestyle that reflects allegiance to Jesus. And so in that lifestyle should specifically reflect the unity that he accomplished. The unity that he accomplished. And this calling is a shared calling for every follower of Jesus. And so this calling, when you hear this word, you're called, don't think your vocation, like you're a teacher or you're an engineer or a pastor. You know, this isn't about a career. This is living each day within the context of relationships with real people in a way that embodies the unity that God has accomplished through Christ, through the work of Jesus. We live in a culture that is overcome with division and strife, right? You feel it. But we, we are called to a countercultural lifestyle that reflects the oneness that we received through faith in Jesus, that reflects the radical love and grace that we've been shown that we might allow that love and grace to so infiltrate our thoughts towards others and our actions towards others. It would shape our words and our behavior. This is what he's getting at. This is what we're called to. It's a shared call. Verse two, he describes what this calling looks like. It's a life marked by these things with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another. We begin to reflect Jesus. 
I mean, this is what happens when Christ dwells in us. Remember, he prayed that for the Ephesians. He prayed that Christ would dwell within them. Not for them to become Christians, but for them to mature. That, Christ, that they would abide in Christ. And that he would abide in them. That their source of strength for living out their faith would be found in the love of Christ. And so this is what happens when Christ is abiding in us. We, we talked about when you dwell in a home for a period of time, that home begins to reflect you, your character. As Christ dwells within us, as we abide in him and he in us, our lives should begin to reflect his character. That we'd walk in humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. This is the fruit of the Spirit's presence in our lives. So let's just take patience, for instance. You know, that's the easiest one. I'm just joking. (laughs) I've got that down. (laughs) That's why I want to talk about that one. No, patience is so hard. But patience happens when we're willing to lay aside our own agenda and our own opinions and instead listen and care for and show love to those we're tempted not to. Are you with me? Have you been there? And so patience happens, um, or we're called to patience rather, when we experience mistreatment. Well, that's not easy. We're called to patience when we're misunderstood or misrepresented, when we encounter the shortcomings in others or when we need to wait on others or when we need to wait on God, when we face adversity and difficulty and trials. We're called to patience. But we're called to patience. Look, this calling is rooted in the character, in the patience that we have been shown. In the grace, in the love, in the forbearance that we have been shown. Oh, the patience of God towards us. But the further we move away from that, the quicker we are to forget it and then begin to treat others in a way that really we wouldn't even ourselves want to be treated. But we've been treated with such patience, such love, such grace. And we're to show that same patience as we abide in Christ and he in us. And as we recognize the Spirit's presence, when we read of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. I mean, we are spirit people. Those who are in Christ have the Spirit of the living God dwelling within them. I mean, this is, this is what Scripture tells us. We have God the Spirit with us. We're never alone. He goes before us. He's with us. I mean, we, we always have him with us. I, I love when I'm, when I'm praying... I love just recognizing his presence, just practicing, like just the recognition of his presence. I know you're with me. I'm so glad you're with me. I know you're near. I recognize that you are near. Thank you for walking with me. Help me to walk with you. I want to I walk with you all the days of my life. Thank you for being with me. I mean, that's oftentimes how I begin my time of prayer. And so we're just recognizing God's presence, but the spirit, he produces these things in us as we as we lean in to who he is and, and what's been accomplished, these are the characteristics that are produced in us. And then he goes on to say in verse three, eager to maintain or to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. This is what our calling is. This is what every follower of Jesus has been called to, to be eager to maintain, to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. In other words, he's saying, look, you're all, you already share this common experience of reconciliation with God through faith in Jesus and, and with each other, Jew and Gentile. And it's hard for us to grasp just how, how like, crazy that was in their day for Jew and Gentile, non-Jew, 
to be worshiping together, to be reconciled, those who hated one another at one time. They're now reconciled and living life together in community because of what Jesus has done. And so he's saying, look, you already share this common experience of reconciliation with God and with each other. Now maintain it, like actively protect it. In other words, don't allow pride and envy and bitterness and resentment and selfish ambition to loosen this bond. This is your calling. Like this is your shared calling. Are you actively striving together to keep the unity of the spirit? Now, verses four through six give us essentials of the faith that our our lives are rooted in. In other words, our unity is rooted in a shared commitment to these essential truths. Now, some think that these verses are actually a confessional statement of the early church. It's certainly structured in a way uh, that it might be a confessional statement or a creed. Was the church in Ephesus, which by the way was likely broken up into house churches throughout the city, were they familiar with this creed, with this confessional statement? Had they committed it already to memory? Uh, we don't know. Um, but, but look, the word one is repeated seven times in these verses. And so it's an emphasis on the unity that they're called to. So, so look, it says there is one body. One body. And in other words, there's one church. One church. You know, we might have our different denominations We have our different names for our churches. There's different local communities. Nothing wrong with that. But there is ultimately one church, one body, one spirit. You are called to one hope. And when you hear hope, don't think like wishful thinking. Think certainty and expectation rooted in the finished work of Jesus, of what will be, what he has accomplished. So one hope, one Lord one faith, one baptism. We are baptized into Christ by the Spirit. And so our physical baptism is an outward demonstration of this inward reality. We've been placed into Christ by the Spirit. The Spirit baptism. One baptism. So this past Wednesday, we had some baptisms at my neighbor's house. Um, and uh, just beautiful. The Allendale house group gathering together, just so, so sweet. We got to hear testimonies and, and celebrate what God had done, has done and is doing in the lives of those who were being baptized. And so what, what are they doing? They're stepping out in obedience to Jesus because Jesus calls us to be baptized. But what they're doing is it's an outward demonstration of what's already happened on the inside. They've been reconciled to God through Christ. Their life is now hidden in Christ Jesus. They've identified fully uh, that his death was their death. The old is gone. They've died. And, the, and, and then when they come out, it's, it's symbolic of this new life in Christ Jesus. Cleansed of your sins. You've entered into this new family of Christ followers. It's powerful. Beautiful. If you've not been baptized, talk to us. Let's, let's move towards baptism if you've not been baptized. One baptism, he says. He goes on to say, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This isn't like a pantheistic belief, like God is, is that tree or is the sun 
or is everything, the universe, like capital U. That's not what this is saying. This is saying he is supreme. He is all-powerful. He's over all of creation. And, and this creed, uh, this confessional statement, is, is very Trinitarian. Do you see it? One spirit, one Lord, one God, Father of all. And so our unity is rooted in a shared commitment to these essential truths of the faith. It isn't unity at any cost. Like, we're not going to give up these essentials. We can still love someone who doesn't embrace these essentials, but it isn't unity at, like, any cost. We're not going to let go of these essentials. And this isn't moralism. What I mean by that is this isn't behavior modification. When he calls us to live with all humility and, and, um, and love, this isn't behavior modification like compliance to a list of rules without heart change. That's not what this is. Like, oh, okay, okay, I'll just be more patient. No, that's, that's not what this is. That won't last, and it's dangerous. We're talking about a change in behavior that happens because of the truth of the gospel that is first and foremost changed our hearts, has humbled us, has, has moved us, is shaping us, reshaping us. Because of Jesus, we have a new identity. We're welcomed into a new family with new rights and a new purpose. We've learned that already here in Ephesians. And so here's what happens. The good news of what Jesus accomplished or the gospel, it reshapes the way we view ourselves and treat others. It, it should reshape the way you view yourself. Oh, there's, you have so much value and worth. Think of the great length that God went, all that God did to rescue you and reconcile you to himself. So it reshapes how we view ourselves and treat others. It confronts old habits and patterns of behavior, which we'll get to next week. We'll talk a lot about that. And it enables us to face external pressures and internal fears. That's what the gospel does. We're transformed by it. So here's the question. Where have you allowed personality conflicts, personal offenses, arguments over theological non-essentials, political views, personal matters to overshadow these essentials? Where have you given yourself a pass to not be reconciled with a brother or a sister? Where have you written someone off you are called to a lifestyle that reflects what Jesus accomplished. You've been united. You are called to a lifestyle of oneness, of unity. Second, you're equipped. You are equipped for the work of ministry. I'm so encouraged by this. I need to be equipped. Verse seven, but grace was given to each one of us. What a relief. Like, whoo, thank you, Lord that you've given grace to each one of us. Now, in, in chapter three, verse eight, Paul spoke of this grace. He, he spoke of the grace given to him to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He recognized that there was grace given to him to proclaim the truth of Christ, the unsearchable riches of Christ to non-Jews. And here he writes of the grace given to each one of us to carry out the calling we've received. It's so special and Paul's thoughts actually race to a psalm, to Psalm 68, verse 18. It's what he quotes. It's a psalm of God's triumph over his enemies. 
And what he does is he connects this psalm to what Jesus accomplished through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, his descent to earth, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. I mean, this is where he goes. And so the hosts, even the hosts that Jesus led captive are the evil principalities in dark powers. I mean, let's just read it again here in chapter 4. He says, therefore, it says, and he's quoting Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So he's quoting Psalm 68, a message of Yahweh, of God's triumph. And he, he draws a line to Jesus, and he says, this is finding fulfillment in what Christ has done for us in, in his descent. And ascension. I want you to see the triumph that Jesus has brought us. Look with me in Colossians, which is like a sister letter to the Ephesians, would have been circulated in the same region. And, and look what Paul writes to them in chapter 2, verse, well, I want you to see verse 15, but we got to back it up to 13. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, here's what God has done. He's made you alive together with him, with Christ having forgiven all your trespasses, all your sin. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities. And he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus has triumphed over the principalities and dark powers. And some of those principalities and dark powers, the Ephesians were still afraid of. And so what a kind reminder of God's victory, of what he's really, of the triumph that Jesus has accomplished, this great salvation and deliverance, and how refreshing to hear that with this comes gifts, comes gifts. So Psalm 68 was traditionally read by Jews on Pentecost Sunday, a celebration of God's gift of the law through Moses, right? But again, Paul sees it fulfilled in Jesus. And so because of Jesus' victory on the cross and his ascension to the right hand of the Father, Jesus gave the gift of the Spirit. And along with the Spirit come gifts to empower the church for the work of ministry. And that's where he's going next. He says in verse 11, and he gave. Who gave? Jesus. Jesus gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, pastors, teachers, who are these people? Well, apostles, sent ones, eyewitnesses to Jesus' life and ministry with a unique calling in history. Prophets, whether referring to foundational, the foundational prophetic activity of the early church or a broader reference to the gift of prophecy, which exists, he's given prophets. Evangelists, individuals with the gift of proclamation, Philip, in the book of Acts, and Timothy had this gift. Shepherds, or pastors. I mean, that's what a pastor means. Uh, the word pastor is shepherd. He's given pastors, and, and the word pastors, teachers, many see it as one, uh, one role or office called to watch over and care for the church, to teach the word of God. So here's what he's, he's saying. He gave some people particular leadership gifts so that all would be equipped. Each of these roles, each of these individuals are gifts to the church with a focus 
on holding up or holding out the word of God. And the purpose is to equip. The purpose is to prepare. Or the word means to completely qualify for a specific purpose. Oh, wow, that's, that's nice. Like you're completely qualified. Like the Lord has given, Jesus has given these individuals, these sp- specific roles within the church to completely qualify you for the work you're called to. The saints, you might hear that and say, I'm sorry, who? Who are you talking about? You. Anyone who is in Christ Jesus, you are a set-apart one. You are holy, set-apart. You are dedicated for God's use. So he equips the saints for the work of ministry so that you can do the work of ministry, so that you can do the work of serving the body of Christ. That's what the word ministry means, service. Like what? What are we talking about here? Like serving one another in love. Like helping each other know Christ better. Helping each other reflect Jesus' character more and more. Building each other up in our faith. Encouraging each other towards growth and spiritual maturity. To be the people we're called to be. Ironically, the work of ministry is oftentimes what people think those in verse 11 is called to do. Right? Well, the work of the ministry, I mean, that's what Darren does, the pastor. Or that's what so-and-so does. And too often, uh, the work of ministry, it, it bottlenecks with these individuals, with leaders within the church that have a specific role and responsibility and call to equip the saints. It's it's ironic. We have to work really hard, church. We have to work really hard to push against that. And so from the start, it's it's the reason why we we recognized Heather as the ambassador to Next Step. We have so much to learn from Next Step Pregnancy Center. So much. And we have learned. Let me tell you, it can't all bottleneck with the pastoral team that, that we're leading the charge. It has to be individuals within the church who have a, have a vision to come alongside ministries and to learn from them so that Heather then is our representative spearheading effort that will help encourage Next Step and help you get connected with Next Step. And so again, we just don't want the work of ministry to be something that is, is recognized as only for those in verse 11. That's not it at all. And so verse 14 so that we don't remain children. All of this is heading in a direction so that we would grow in our spiritual maturity. We don't want to remain children, immature in our faith. Tossed around, he says, like a boat caught in a fierce storm. Look, no parent wants their kid to act like a child the rest of their life, right? And so we want to grow up in Christ. Followers of Jesus, we are called to spiritual maturity. The, the author to, to, Hebrews, uh, to the Hebrews, he writes uh, that, you know, hey, you should be on solid food with this same illustration, but now you're just still drinking milk. You should be teaching the word, but you still need the, the basics. And so followers of Jesus who aren't grounded in the word of God become easy prey. You'll become an easy target for false teaching, truly. And so where are we susceptible? Where are we vulnerable to false teaching or to, to spiritual immaturity, it, it's important to, to evaluate. I want, I want to show you just an emotionally charged scene 
where Paul, the last time he saw the Ephesians was on, in, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20. Let's go there together. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is departing. He had been in Ephesus for uh, some time. And, and look with me in verse 28. He's exhorting the elders. Imagine, he's about to board his ship, and he's with the group of elders, the uh, pastors uh, of the churches in Ephesus, the house churches. And he's, he's, he's gathering with them, and this is his last word to them. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Note that it's God's church. It's God's church. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Go down to verse 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Such a sweet moment. And there was much weeping on the part of all They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So personal, so real. People just like you and me. What's he doing? He's warning them. Get ready. Be aware. Don't live unaware. Verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 4 reminds us that this spiritual maturity, it's described as growing up into him who is the head, into Christ. And oftentimes Paul uses this body uh, analogy to describe the church, Christ being the head, which makes sense. He directs, he guides. We're members of his body. We're joined together. And the point is each person has a part to play. Each person is a member of the body. And look, we've all experienced times when we get a hangnail or we sprain our ankle or our toothaches, a small part of the body that we don't even think about ever. When it starts to hurt, it's like, wow, I really need that body part to get in line. Something so small that impacts the whole body. And so we all have a part to play. We all have a role. You are called to contribute to the health and the maturity of this local church. And so instead of remaining children, instead of remaining immature, instead of remaining vulnerable, what are we to do? Verse 15, we're to speak the truth in love. Speak the truth of the gospel in love. We're to confront lies. We're to celebrate what is true in Jesus. And then verse 16, every person plays a vital role in the health and in the vibrancy of the body. Look what he says in verse 16. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself in love. Every person plays a vital role in the health and vibrancy of the body. I know it's hard to see at times. I get it. Because it's often worked out the part we play is often worked out in the mundane activity 
of, of community and relationships, like behind the scenes, private conversations. And, and it requires faith to see what part we play. And, and we forget. We need to be reminded of the part we play. Jesus has given church leaders to promote this kind of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. So what kind of shepherd would I be if I didn't hold out the responsibility that you have to participate in the work of ministry? I wouldn't be a good shepherd. I wouldn't be a good pastor. I'm holding this out to you, church, that you might see the part you play in building up the church, in the health and well-being of this church, in the unity of this church. You know, it's one of the greatest joys of my life, seriously, like to see you grow, to be stretched, to step out in love, to be used in ways you would never have imagined, to see you reconcile differences. I love it. It's a work of the spirit in your life. And oftentimes I get this front row seat to it happening and I just, I just celebrate it. It's a great joy. Finally, vital to the health of local church St. Pete. You are vital. So this passage has been described as a blueprint to the church or, or for the church by, by one author. I love that. A blueprint for the church. This is Jesus' design. So let's not move away from it. When you faithfully participate in a Sunday gathering, when you choose to get the kids up, when you choose to get out of bed on a Sunday morning and participate, when, when you give sacrificially, Worship the Lord with your, your, your money that represents so much of your time and your effort. When, when you commit to a house group, a smaller group of individuals to run with, when you serve on a Sunday serve team, when you ask the Holy Spirit to use you where you live and where you work and where you play, when you show deep concern and brokenness over the injustice around us in our city, and then you decide to do something about it, when you take time to grieve with others, when you take time to pray for others and encourage them, when you walk someone through a portion of the Bible, when you open your home and share a meal, when you meet with someone who isn't yet a follower of Jesus, what are you doing? What are you doing when you do those things? You're carrying out the blueprint found in Ephesians 4. And so here's what you're saying. Yeah, you're saying, I refuse to stay on the sidelines I refuse to believe that I have nothing to offer. I'm going to play my part in building up this church. That's what you're saying. It's awesome. And so here we are. We're called to come alongside each other, a particular people in a particular context, in a particular time of history. The Ephesians had their time. It's our day. Yeah. And we get to be a part of what God is doing in each other's lives. You are called, you are equipped, and you are vital. Ephesians 4 reminds us that every follower of Jesus has much to offer, and there is no time to waste. Yes. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that you have placed us within this church. We're asking that you would, by your spirit, please give us the courage and humility necessary to maintain and to be eager to maintain the unity that we share. Lord, we pray that local would be a community 
that seeks to build each other up in you. That we would understand the role that we play. That we would refuse, refuse to stay on the sidelines. That we would refuse to believe we have nothing to offer. In Christ's name, amen.